Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at Interview Valet, and his name is Dr. Roger Hall. Dr. Hall is the author of Staying Happy, Being Productive, The Big Ten Things Successful People Do, and the book Expedition. He is a business psychologist with clients all over the country, and he trains leaders to monitor and manage their thinking. Roger knows great leaders work on themselves first, and then success in their companies follows. Roger received his doctorate in psychology from Ohio State University in 1991, and he has worked with thousands of leaders and loves to work with small entrepreneurial firms. Now, as you can guess by uh, kind of his bio there, uh, Dr. Hall really is into what a lot of folks refer to as metacognition, thinking about thinking, being very thoughtful and mindful of what our thoughts are and knowing that they're there and how they're influencing our daily decision-making processes. So this was a great discussion. I really don't have a lot to add up front here because we get a lot of meat throughout this conversation. So I'm just going to go ahead and get out of the way, let the stinger play, and let you get into this amazing interview with Dr. Roger Hall. Dr. Hall, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Earl. I'm very grateful to be here today. Oh, man. And I'm excited to, to have this conversation because, you know, I'm by no stretch am I a doctor, but but I love getting into the psychology and the mental aspects behind uh, leadership and success. And and uh, so I consider myself a novice, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with somebody who's in depth with this as you are. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer to that question where I start everybody, uh, where I start everybody at, what does the phrase burden of command mean to you? There's a, uh, I think it's a Shakespeare quote that says heavy is the head that wears the crown. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it's it's the same concept that everyone who has a position of leadership and anyone who has a position of command has a burden has has heavy responsibilities and the leaders I work with recognize that it, it's not just the power they get but it's the responsibility that they get and um you know the the business owners that I work with they do lay awake at night wondering about how they're going to make payroll because they know that, you know, that guy just got braces for his daughter and he's got payment plans coming up for the next year and a half. And and so they know that that the decisions they make affect lots of people. So they they are concerned about the people who who work for them. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that quote. And I, and I love what you said there, because. You know, as I was doing my uh, my due diligence and preparing for this interview, uh, you know, I was going and listening to some of the the YouTube content and other podcasts that you've been on and all that kind of good stuff. And I stumbled on a piece there, and and I don't know if this was intentional or if it was just uh, you know kind of divine intervention here. Uh, but I stumbled on a piece you did about the fear of poverty, if I remember right. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and you shared a very, I guess you could say, intimate story of your own there, right? So do you care to share that with my audience? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I I gave this example um, not to show that, you know, my particular fears 
are are anything unique or traumatic in in that sense, but to show that even um, mundane fears can change the course of our life and we can overcome them. And one of the things that lots of people have is the fear of poverty. They believe that um, if they lose their job, um, they'll, you know, be living in a cardboard box down by the river, um, drinking Mad Dog 2020 out of a paper sack. They, they, they can imagine these, 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 you know, horrible outcomes. And I grew up uh, the son of a university professor, and both of my parents were uh, Depression-era children. And so my parents believed that um, poverty was always around the bend. You know, my, my dad said if they hadn't had the garden, uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have made it. They would have starved. Um, my mom, you know, saved everything and fixed everything. Uh, because they just didn't have two nickels to rub together. And so I grew up in a home where we never had lack of anything. We never wanted for anything. Uh, but I always had this specter because of my parents' uh, depression era experience that, you know, we were on the verge of, of, you know, destitution because that was the way my parents had grown up. And so I always believed that, you know, uh, the wolves were around the corner. And so I grew up being afraid of, of being poor. And so I believed, and I answered the question, this is a question I ask all of my leadership clients, is who's going to take care of you? And how they answer that question is very important. Some of them will say, what do, what do you mean? And I said, well, just, you know, what's your, what's your initial response? And they say, well, I, I guess my family will take care of me or Sometimes they say my company, my organization, the government, uh, and some of them say I'll take care of me. And so I, I, because my dad was a professor, you know, the the university was a, a safe place. And so I thought, growing up in that environment, that the university would take care of me, or some other large organization would take care of me. And through a series of experiences, I realized that wasn't true. It wasn't the job of a large organization to take care of me. And kind of late in life, uh, about in my mid-30s, I realized nobody is going to take care of me more than me. And that was the first day I started to walk away from the fear of poverty. Um, now, it took, you know, it took getting fired from a job. It took... Um, being self-employed for about five or six years and being afraid that I was going to run out of money. Um, you know, I, I had this clinical practice and, and people would come and they'd write out their check for their, their uh, psychotherapy and they'd leave and I'd wait an acceptable period of time. And then I'd drive up to the bank and deposit the check and then drive back to my office. It was three quarters of a mile away and see my next my next client and they'd leave and then I'd run up and deposit the check. And I did that as many as four times a day. At one point the, the cashier at the, at the bank said, you know, you know, you don't have to come up more than once a day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was so afraid I was going to run out of money, but it took me five or six years of, you know, paying all my bills and not having the gas turned off and, um, being able to support my children. 
all of those things, it took all of that evidence to undo all that learning that I had done from my parents and their experience, uh, their own experience of poverty as, as young people. Well, and that's what I find powerful about that story. And especially that last part there, right. Is again, it's not anything that, that your parents did to you intentionally. It was, it was out of, uh, you know, good faith and, and, you know, well-meaning, but I mean, it's, it's amazing how, I mean, you mentioned this was in your thirties. It's amazing how those things that we go through at our younger stages in life really do kind of creep in and impact our thought processes, you know, well into our thirties, forties, fifties, and sometimes our entire life when we, until we consciously make an effort to come to grips with them. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and that's kind of the, the bedrock of my work, which is, uh, you know, my parents were wonderful parents. I mean, I, I I hit the family of origin lotto. I mean, I had great parents, but even good parents, and I had great parents, even good parents uh, pass along the limits of their own beliefs. You know, it's even harder for people who didn't have good parents, who not only pass along the limits of their own beliefs, but then trained their children in ways that were really dysfunctional uh, for living successfully in life. The, the thing, the reason I give that illustration is that you can change those things in adulthood as soon as you become aware of them and then practice and rehearse over and over again to get past it. And sometimes you need someone who can help you observe your pattern of incorrect thinking. And we all have problems in our thinking. Um, every one of us, Earl, has a stream of consciousness that flows through our head but most of us never stick a ladle or a bucket in to sample what's in that stream of consciousness. And my job is to help people stick a ladle or a bucket into that stream of consciousness and sample how much trash is floating through their stream of consciousness and then help them to sift that out so that their stream of consciousness is much more healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's great. I, I like the way you put that because you know, it, and I'm sure it is absolutely amazing and dang near revelatory every single time you do it because there's something like, well, that is what's caused me to act like this today. Uh, you know, it sometimes we we don't come up with like a single event that happened in their life that caused them to 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 think that way, but we do come up with the pattern of thinking, and once we come up with that pattern of thinking. If it doesn't work, we work then to change it so that they can be more productive, so they can live uh, more fulfilled lives on purpose. Yeah, well, and, and this is what I love about this, right, is because, uh, you know, what we do here at the Leadership Phalanx is uh, we, we do the, so our angle on leadership development is the the inextricable link between leadership, diversity, and inclusion. We like to bring that all together. And so we talk a lot about unconscious biases and why people make the decisions they do and why they think the way they think and, you know, why two people can see the same event unfold on TV and have two completely separate views of what just happened. And it's, it's all the same stuff, right? It's, it's the books you read as a child. It's the, the news you listen to. It's, it's the, the stories you consumed. It's, it's, 
It's everything around you that you take in that nine times out of 10, you're really not aware of the message that you're consuming. So you have to be aware of it, like you just said, before you can kind of filter out and be like, why do I look at this group this way? Oh, this is why. And then I can adjust my thinking based off that information, right? Absolutely. It, you know, we all we all create models of the world based on our experience and we all have different experiences in the world. And unfortunately, many of us uh, tend to put on other people negative uh, qualities. You know, if we don't understand them, they must be stupid or they must be bad. Um, And very often it's just we don't understand them. And we, we haven't learned enough uh, about the world, and there's plenty of the world I don't know about, uh, to create a better model for it. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, speaking of a better model, uh, again, I mentioned this in the pre-roll bio, but you uh, you wrote a book called Staying Happy, Being Productive, The Big 10 Things Successful People Do. So let's talk about that for a little bit. So so first of all, the title. I like that. Staying Happy, Being Productive. Why did you land on that title? Um, you know, I, I'm not very good at titles and somebody recommended that one and it sounded good. So we went with it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I was given a speech for a group of lawyers and I had done a bunch of stuff uh, for continuing legal education for lawyers on stress management and they said, well, let's, that's all the defense. What's the offense look like? And, and um, it, it really came out of this quote from uh, the book Anna Karenina, which is the first line of Anna Karenina, which is, every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And what it suggests is that the habits of happiness and success are few. The habits of disaster and and being distraught are pantheon. And and so I started to observe what are the what are the habits of happy people? You know, I had a, a supervisor in graduate school. She said, you know, we can teach unhappy couples to stop fighting, but that never makes them happy couples. Because happy couples behave differently than unhappy couples who just stop fighting. And so it, all of that stuck with me and made me think, okay, what are those habits of happiness? And so I started looking at people that I thought were successful and started keeping a list of what is it that they did. And I figured out, and I, I had to stop at 10, uh, but I figured out 10 things that they focused on. Um, and, and it, it seems universal that these 10 things were habits, uh, that, that all of the successful people I worked with and watched engaged in. No, I, I like that because it's, you know, I never really thought of it that way, uh, until you explained it, especially that opening line, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's, we, humans are almost engineered to find ways to be uncomfortable and unhappy in life, aren't we? <laughs> well, we're pretty good at focusing on the bad. Yes. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember, uh, I remember seeing a study several years ago, but they, in the study, they, they sent a report card home to parents and, you know, it was like all A's except like one C or something like that. And they asked them to, uh, they asked them to kind of critique, uh, the card, like what were they going to focus on with their child? And it was some overwhelming numbers, like 80 or 90% of the parents like zeroed in on that C and very few of them were like, Hey, you got all A's except for this one class. Good job. So that negativity thing is just, that's what I mean is it's, it's kind of, I don't know if genetically engineered is the right word, but humans love to focus on negative things in their life. And sometimes at the expense of the positive, right? You know, I, I had a, a mentor who, who said, Roger, some people like to chew on things that don't taste good. And that has always stuck with me. And there's a, there's a great book out now called The Power of Bad by John Tierney and Roy Baumeister, where these two authors look at the, the psychological research on the power of bad things. Um, the, the example I give about this, this part about bad, and then we'll talk about why success looks different, um, is, is our brains are designed to keep us alive. And fear and disgust are the things that are going to kill us, it's things that taste bad and things that are going to kill us that we should be afraid of. So we remember those bad things the most. So here's the example I always give. So Earl, have you ever had food poisoning? Yep. Do you know what it was? Absolutely. And do you know what year it was? Uh, roughly, yes. Okay. So ballpark, how, how long ago did you get food poisoning? Okay, so this has been about 2014. Okay, so we're talking about something that happened at least six years ago, but you still remember it today and yep. what it was. Okay, so let me ask you this next question. What did you have for dinner last Thursday? Uh, that's a great question. I have no you idea. have no idea. Exactly. <laughs> so this, this illustrates the point, which is anyone who's ever had food poisoning remembers what made them sick and what year it was, but most of us can't remember what we had for dinner last Thursday. Well, here's what I can guarantee about dinner last Thursday. Dinner last Thursday was mildly positive, but that isn't life-threatening. So our brains don't remember that, yeah. but our brains do remember the bad. And so we have this incredible tendency as humans to remember and focus on and recall the bad and not recall the good. And so part of what happy, successful people do is they, they tend to focus on the good. Um, they mentally rehearse the things that are good. So they, they engage in, in the habits of gratitude. And all gratitude is, is thinking about those mildly positive events in your life and bringing them to mind so that they can have enough um, enough power in memory to counteract all of the bad. I don't, does that make sense, Earl? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so you know, happy people, successful people, their lives are, for the most part, really boring. Um. I remember being in high school and a friend of mine said, what if they made a movie about your life 
And I, I just looked at him and said, nobody'd make a movie about my life. It's too boring. <laughs> and that's because I had a largely happy life. There's no drama in, in that kind of story. And so happy, successful people, their lives from the outside look kind of dull. Um, you know, their families eat together. They, um, they spend time doing things they enjoy. They read. Um, they're involved in their faith together. Um, they have regular exercise. I mean, I can go through the list, but they're, they're really kind of dull. Um, and that's the foundation upon which happy, successful people can have wonderful, fulfilling lives. Mm. No, I, what I like about that, and, and kind of tying back to the, the the marriage comment there earlier, you know, it's one of the things my wife and I chuckle about all the time, right? Because when we go out, you know, we we usually get like, "Oh, you guys, I'm I'm so jealous. You guys are so happy together." My my husband and I, we we fight all the time, or my wife and I, we fight all the time. We're like, "Yes, yeah, so do we," mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, but you guys don't seem like you would ever. But you know, it's it's this thing like kind of this whole conversation I've been thinking about, you know, my wife and I, because we, we balance each other out so well, like you were talking about money. Like she's very much like your story about the, the fear of poverty Mm -hmm. and I'm the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm like, you know, Hey, we got overdraft for a reason. Let's just go wild. (laughs) And, and, And so we balance each other out. And, and it's the same thing with, you know, all these other things in life is I'm the eternal optimist and, I'm not going to go as far as say she's the eternal pessimist, but she's definitely got a more negative point of view on stuff. But the great thing that makes us uh, makes our marriage happy and successful is we're able to talk about it from our both both of our perspectives. Her mostly the negative, me mostly the optimist positive part there, mm-hmm. and figure out that the answer is usually somewhere in the middle of us, right? Right, right. Um, and and um. Martin Seligman, who wrote a book called Learned Optimism, you know, he, it, it's, a, it's a groundbreaking book. I recommend, you know, everybody read it. Um, you know, he said, I, I am a pessimist and I know that my life would be better if I was more optimistic. But there, there are times to be pessimistic. There are certain circumstances in which it makes sense to, to be pessimistic. And you kind of always on a team want someone who's kind of your troubleshooter, the person who's going to find the problems. They're usually engineers or lawyers. That's kind of where they tend to gravitate to. Um, but then you you need the other people who are the hope givers. Um, and they may not always be as right as the troubleshooters, but they they do live longer, healthier, happier lives. So you need you need both on a team. Yeah. No, exactly. And it's, it's, yeah, no, I love it. Uh, <laughs> because like I said, it was just, it was very, uh, it was very interesting here. You, uh, unpack all this. I'm like, yeah, that, that you're, you're talking about my wife and I's relationship here. And you don't even know it. Um, but yeah. And you know, let's, so talking about these, these 10 things, right. We've kind of already talked about thought life quite a bit. Yep. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of briefly exercise life, but if you want to unpack that a little bit more, feel free. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the first one is thought life, uh, which I, I talk about a lot. I actually had to divide that chapter up into, that's the longest chapter and an appendix. And my, my publisher said it's too long. And I said, it, it could be longer. In fact, it could be half the book. And, um, um, the next one is exercise life. And, and what I find is that happy, successful people 
are regularly engaged in some sort of physical activity and that you want to improve your mood, the number one way to do that is to be physically active. And, you know, I don't tell you what's the, you know, the absolute perfect exercise, you know, in my mind, the perfect exercise is the one you'll actually do. And so if it's, if it's, if it's walking your dog or if it's playing racquetball or if it's, you know, Tai Chi, I, I really don't care. It's the one that you'll do. Um, so that's the next thing. Nutritional life. Um, most of us think about healthy heart and healthy bones, but our brain occupies between three and 5% of our body mass, but consumes 20 to 25% of the fuel in our food. So the food we eat is disproportionately fueling our thinking. And so most of us take greater care of what we put in our cars, you know, like we won't buy certain brands of gas, but we'll, we'll put anything in our mouth. Um, so, so if you want to be at peak levels of, of thinking, it really is about what nutrition are you putting, uh, in your body to fuel your brain. The next one is love life because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Um, what, what I've, what I found is that happy people, uh, those primary love relationships are really, really important. Um, the, there's the Harvard study of men that, that happened back in the 1930s and 1940s and goes on even today. And one of the conclusions of that is that people who reported greater life satisfaction had strong, positive, primary love relationships. They're their their spouse, their partner, their children, their immediate family members. And if we look at happiness, it it appears that happiness and positive love relationships are uh intertwined. So if if you want to have a great life, work hard on those primary relationships. Um the next is social life. And what I find about, uh, in the leaders I work with is most of them don't have friends. They have associates. They have um, people that they are social with, but they don't really have very many friends. And the more powerful a person becomes, the fewer friends they have. Um, so I encourage people, you, it'll take you a, a decade to develop a new friend. And my sort of thumbnail uh, estimate is, is you need about a half a dozen friends, enough to carry your casket. And, you know, you don't need a ton of friends, but, you know, a half a dozen will do. That's a good benchmark, by the way. It's a, it's a decent benchmark. Um, and so I've got, I've got five guys. And the one who is my newest friend, Earl, I've known since 2003. That's my newest friend. Now, mm-hmm. I've got other people who are kind of in the mix, but in that five guys, you know, the newest is 2003. The oldest, you know, I've known since the ninth grade. Um, so, but these are people who've known me for so long, they can, they can call me on my, on my idiocy, you know, they, and we all need that, especially as, as we get more and more influence and more and more power. We need people who will tell us the truth. Well, and, and I like that piece right there that, that will tell us the truth, because like you said, and I think this is a trap that too many leaders fall into, 
correct me if I'm wrong here with your experiences, but as you said, as you get more power, as you get more influence in an organization, the tendency for the people that are working with and for you is they're, they're less likely to want to make you unhappy by disagreeing with you. And it's my experiences that if, if you're in a room and you throw something out and all you have are heads bobbing north and south in agreement all the time, that's the first indicator that your, your leadership is really in trouble because nobody is telling you the truth. They're telling you what you want to hear to stay in your good graces, right? I, I, I couldn't agree more that the more power you have, the more you are lied to and misinformed. Um, it's, it's not because people want to lie to you. It's because they want to please you. Mm -hmm. And so they will, they will shade the truth. They will give you the best news possible, but they won't give you the unvarnished truth. And if you do something that, um, is stupid, um, they won't tell you. They will say, way to go, attaboy, whatever. Um, they, they won't tell you, that's an idiot move. And if you do that again, I'm going to come over to your house and I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> um, and, and we all need those people who will tell us the unpleasant truth because we all need to hear the unpleasant truth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's and it's kind of our responsibility to 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 create that environment where that's acceptable because you know whenever i'm working with leaders and they they ask me what is your assessment you know the the first question i ask is are you sure you want to hear the answer <laughs> <laughs> you know because if you don't we can stop the conversation right here but but here's you know this this is what i see this is the the, the truth as i see it it may not be what you want to hear but it's what i think you need to hear and and, you, you know, you can tell, um, so Colin Powell had a great quote. It says, uh, when your people stop bringing you their problems, it's a failure of leadership because they've come to one of two conclusions. Either you don't care enough to fix their problems or you don't have the skill set to fix their problems. Mm -hmm. Either one of those is a failure of leadership. And And I think it's the same thing here. If people aren't willing to tell you, hey, slow down or, or, or no outright sometimes, that's a huge failure of leadership. It, it is, but the feedback loop isn't there. So people can be, you know, driving down the highway, uh, steering with their rear view mirror, um, looking at the past and all their past successes and not seeing the, the, the problems that are coming up in front of them because they don't have people telling them. What the what what the future may hold, um, so I'm I'm in I'm in perfect agreement with you, Earl. I love it. I love it. So number six is work life. Work life. Yes. the The other conclusion from the Harvard study of men is that happy, successful people love their work. It's not that they were the richest, the most powerful, the most famous. They enjoyed their work. And so those two things, you know, having a, a strong primary love relationship and enjoying your work are the two, based on that study, the two important factors in life satisfaction. And so I strongly encourage people, man, if you're in a soul crushing job, start looking for something that won't 
you know, it won't take your soul away every day uh, because our lives are far too short and we each have so many gifts to to give them over to soul crushing work. Um, and, and I'll just say this because I love what you just said there. Because I've had too many people who have put themselves in that position chasing a bigger paycheck. They've taken a job that has promoted them out of a place that they loved Mm -hmm. into a job that now they hate life because of the decisions they have to make, the, the things they no longer get to do. Or it's taken them to an area that they despise. You know, they they loved living in the country, but now they're living in uh, downtown Manhattan or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's the same thing here. Like it is, it, it's okay to find that place in an organization where you're like, you know what? No, I'm not ready. To, I don't want any more promotions. This is happy for me, right? Yeah. And the, so you've got these these kind of. Um, contrary motives, one of which is to achieve more and the other of which is to find purpose. And and both of those motives are good, but sometimes the achievement drive will trump the purpose drive that, you know, I, I have meaningful work. I'm doing something that helping people every day. I find joy in my work, but there's one more notch. Maybe that'll make me even happier. And, um, you know, we, we kind of get promoted to the level of our incompetence and then we get fired. Sometimes it's smart just to, to, to hold for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. And that probably takes us to uh, number seven, money life. Money life. Yeah. So money life, you know, sometimes people will, will, will think that more money will make them happier. And the, the formula is this, money can't buy you happiness, but it can certainly help you avoid a lot of misery. And so if you're broke or you're in debt, um, that can be pretty miserable. And, and if we look at life satisfaction and money, there seems to be a one-to-one relationship that one more level of money increases one more level of life satisfaction up to a point. And after a certain point, after a certain dollar value, it kind of levels out. And so I encourage people figure out, you know, figure out your lack of money problems and then figure out how much is enough for you. Because after a certain point, it takes four times as much money to get one little unit of happiness. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is it worth it to me to work that much harder for one more level of life satisfaction? So I don't tell people what the dollar value is. You know, if you're if you're in a, in suburban Indianapolis, the the number is probably far lower than it is in uh you know San Francisco or Boston or you know Honolulu where the cost of living is higher. But so I I don't like to say the number, but figure out what's enough for you and a lot more won't necessarily make you more happy. Yeah. Well, and I would say for anybody who who's listening that may be questioning what you you just said there, you know, we see this happen all the time with athletes, with uh, performers, with people who win the lottery. You know, nine times out of ten, those folks are in some type of financial straits very shortly after getting these massive amounts of money because what you said, they're not necessarily happy. 
and they, they found more misery, right? They've had the friends coming out of the woodworks that want to borrow this amount of money and that amount of money. They bought houses for all these people to keep them as quote friends in their lives. And you know, yeah, having those absorbent amount of money is always sounds good. I mean, who doesn't want to be Jeff Bezos paying, what is it like three or $4 billion for a yacht with that comes with a, what did they say? It was a yacht that comes with a support yacht, right? <laughs> I don't know if you saw that, but yeah, this no, thing is, no, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. So apparently it, it, it's so big and there's so many staff and, and uh, you know, from the mechanics and the engineers that, that instead of having like a little dinghy that most of them have, it's, it's a yacht with a support yacht. That sounds great. Right. But we just saw kind of the, the turmoil and anguish that this guy's life really was going through play out on a public scene. I, I, I think, you know, all of those toys, all those things think, you know, they, they scream to me, that's a rental. You know, I don't yeah. want to own that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I love it. Um, and then eight is now this is one for me, right? This is one where I always go around and around with with my friends on because I, I'm I'm a full disclosure. I'm a early to bed, early to rise. I usually get up four four thirty in the morning, which means I'm yep. usually in bed by depending what's going on the night before. Let's just say I'm I'm almost always in bed by nine p.m. Yep. And I got friends who are, you know, night owls that don't go to sleep until I'm waking up. Uh-huh. And neither one of us is right, neither one of us is wrong, right? Well, um you've got to figure out what your your rhythm is. Um uh, but I I I'm less concerned about when you get your sleep and more concerned about that you get your sleep. Mm-hmm. And your, you know, your mom and my mom were right. As adults, we need about eight hours of uninterrupted sleep a night. And the reason for that, Earl, is that it's at nighttime that our brain repairs itself and cleans itself. Um, our, our brain doesn't have blood flowing through it. It's cerebrospinal fluid, and there's no heart that pumping that cerebrospinal fluid. And what we know now is that the brain actually expands and contracts while we're asleep and it flushes out all of the ick in the cerebrospinal fluid. And it releases these, these chemicals called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is the, it's called BDNF. And that's the stuff that helps our brain repair and grow. And if we're not getting enough sleep, our brain can't clean itself out and it can't repair and grow. And so, you know, Earl, if you're at bed in bed by nine and up by four, uh, good for you. You know, that's, you know, that's good sleep. Um, yeah, and, and you should continue on. If people are up till four, then I hope they're sleeping until noon. Right? Right. Exactly. How do, and so this is another one that I have heard a lot of differing opinions on, but how does, you know, like naps and power naps, uh, factor into this? Yeah. I, naps, uh, you know, there are some cultures that nap a lot, you know, prior to the, the advent of electricity, our society, there were two sleeps. We'd fall asleep when it got dark. 
We'd wake up in the middle of the night. We'd talk to our bed partners about the things that we were dreaming about. We'd be up for a while, and then we'd fall back asleep until it was light. Um, so there were actually two sleeps prior to the advent of electricity. And there are cultures like in Spain uh, where everyone takes a siesta in the middle of the afternoon. And those those patterns seem to work. Um, in the United States, it appears that you know, some people do well with a nap. Um, but if you're using naps as a way to recover sleep, um, then you're probably underslept. And what I encourage people to do is to determine how long does it take for sleep onset to come on. And so you can lay on the couch and you can put a, a plate on the floor and hold a fork in your hand and look at your watch and then lay down and, and close your eyes. And when the fork falls out of your hand, clatters on the plate, you look at your watch and see how many minutes did it take for you to fall asleep. And if you've fallen asleep in under five minutes, you are probably sleep deprived. Hmm. So okay. most of us, most of us are, as adults, are sleep deprived. The only person in our home who isn't sleep deprived is our eight-year-old. And you know what it's like putting an eight-year-old to bed? <laughs> I'm not sleepy. You know, yeah, you'll fall asleep. Um, so if you can fall asleep in under 15 minutes, you're probably sleep deprived. Um, so, so addressing sleep is, I, of all these 10, that's the one that I encourage people to, to work on first. Uh, it's such a foundational habit. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Having, uh, you know, been in positions through, through my military career where you had all the time in the world to sleep and then you had no time to sleep. You, mm -hmm. you definitely miss those times when, <laughs> when you have no time to sleep. I mean, I, I don't know how many people, you know, always hear about like some, some gurus that start talking about like sleep deprivation to reset the mind. And, you know, the most I've ever went, I went through a, uh, it was just shy of a 72 hour period where I had three hours of sleep, uh, and, and a lot of activity in between. And I, I would never intentionally do that to myself again because I was just miserable. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I always question those folks who are like, yeah, I do this like three or four times a year. I'm like, well, good for you, guy. <laughs> I, well, I hope I hope in those 72 hours when they're not sleeping, that, that they're not doing any important decision making or operating heavy machinery, because that's when accidents happen. Right. Yeah. So that's the, you know, um, I think I've shared this on here a little bit before, but you know, that's kind of the culmination of Marine Corps boot camp. They put you this thing called the crucible and it's, uh, uh, it's just shy of three days of, uh, force marches. And interesting enough that you say that problem solving exercises, uh, you know, like, uh, you got, you know, three boards and here's the platforms and you've got to get, uh, ammo cans from here to there, uh, while you're sleep deprived. So it's, it's, to try to simulate what you're just talking about being sleep deprived yeah. and having to make decisions. But like you said, the, the secret we don't know as recruits, right. Is that the drill instructors know that the further we go into this, there's no way we're going to solve these problems. It's, it's measuring. They're, they're more so measuring how well you can keep it together and not, 
snap at each other, not let the team break down and, and mm-hmm. maybe even look out for each other while you're trying to problem solve versus can you solve the problem? Because yeah, I'll agree with you. It's, it's virtually impossible to do anything that requires any sort of mental heavy lifting when you've only had like three hours of sleep over three days. Well, and, and your drill sergeants were preparing you for a particular adversity, which <laughs> is combat related sleep deprivation. And they practice in uh, a safe environment in order to prepare you for a not safe environment. And so there's absolutely a purpose for that, but that's not a good indication of what a healthy life looks like. Those, the Marines were training you to, um, to cope in an adverse experience, not how to plan your daily week. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of planning your, your, your days and weeks there, number nine is recreational life. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. But, you know, so many people I work with are, um, you know, they, they have many pieces of success, but they don't have friends and they don't have fun. Uh, and what I have found with the most successful people I work with is they have, um, a robust recreational life that, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And, and so really, really happy people have figured out what is fun for them. Now it's important that we realize that fun is different than happiness. Fun is a component of happiness. Positive emotions are a component of happiness, but happiness really is, um, you've probably familiar with this term eudaimonia, which is that purposeful life, not hedonism, but eudaimonia, which is having a purposeful life. And that, that's what real happiness comes from. Recreational life is a piece of that, but it, it's very easy for some people to think that that's all happiness is, is recreation. And it's not. It's a piece, but it's not all of it. Yeah. Well, and what I love about that, again, is especially right now when we're still hopefully uh, coming out of the the tail end of this whole pandemic situation here. You know, there's all these studies that are starting to pop up talking about how now that people have been, you know, teleworking and telecommuting and doing all of these things from home now, that there's actually less time for these recreational activities because people feel like they're always at work. So i say right now it becomes more important to be more intentional about carving out that time to have a little fun, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the problems that we have that we probably didn't have 40 and 50 years ago were there were natural limits to the end of the workday. You'd get in your car, you'd drive home, you'd listen to the radio, and then you would have your evening. Now you make a, a few phone calls on your way home. Once you get home and once you've made dinner, then you tell yourself, I'll, I'll spend 20 minutes just clearing out some of the emails. And then three hours later, you're, you're still working. And so there's no natural separation between work and not work. And the more we telecommute, um, the fewer barriers there are to the end of the workday. Mm-hmm. So number 10 
is spiritual life. Let's talk about that one for a second. Well, you know, what I have found is that um, almost all of the happy, successful people that I work with have some sort of faith life. And they're part of an organized religious tradition. And I'm not out to evangelize any particular faith. Uh, But what I've looked at in all the research is that those people who have a strong faith component of their life tend to have better lives. They recover from illness more quickly. They have greater longevity. Um, They tend to be happier people. And I think it's an open question. Is that part of the social life of an organized religious community or is it, is it the faith itself? And I think, I, I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate question, but, but the fact of the matter remains that that is a part of their life. There, there are two authors who are both agnostic, who I respect immensely, um, who have said, listen, I, I, I don't, I don't have a faith life. So I know I need to work on the other areas of my life to make up for my lack of faith. Because as I look at people of faith, they tend to be happier. They tend to be more successful. Mm, I like that. I like that. Because, yeah, I mean, and, and I will agree, growing up Southern Baptist, you know, I, I saw that quite a bit. And, you know, in my travels around uh, around the globe for various work reasons, you know, I've ran into several Native, uh, Indigenous peoples, belief systems and I've ran into, you know, several, you know, like versions of, of Wiccan and, and Hindu and Buddhism. And yeah, and you're right. That, that is the one unifying factor with all of them is, is that belief in something that whether it's the unification or, or that's just being part of that shared belief system, the, the more they believe in something, uh, the, the the happier they are, even if that belief in something is is nothing really, right? <laughs> I mean, as much as crazy as that sounds, uh, I've ran into, as you said, some very you know agnostic and even atheist type folks who their belief is what it is, and they believe in it, and they have a group built around it, they have a community, and and they're a part of that. And and ha- it's a completely different ball game for those folks. So so I like that. I like that piece there. It kind of really opens up that spiritual window, if you will, to all the possibilities. I, I and I think it's worth looking at. You know, again, I'm I'm not out proselytizing any particular faith, but uh, you keep looking at these successful people, and they keep having that part of their life. You start to scratch your head and say, there may be something to this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, sir, as crazy as it is here, Dr. Hall, we've been talking for almost 50 minutes here and it has been (laughs) some great discussion. I really appreciate you spending the time uh, with me and my listeners in this conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for for inviting me here today. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And, you know, I want to ask this because, you know, I'm sure with everything you do, there's got to be something that we've missed here. But before we do work to close out here, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is a course I created, an online course called Freak Out, Fear Less, Live More. And um, one of the things I've been spending in the last year is helping people screw their heads back on because people have been freaking out. And so I decided to, to distill 
all of all of the knowledge I have about how to overcome fears uh, into this online course. And so if you know the the staying happy book is is kind of the is is the offense and part of the defense is the avoiding freaking out so that you can have uh, a, a more abundant life. Mm, I love it. Well, uh, with that, because uh, I think this might be a good opportunity here, you know, for folks who if they're listening here, they want to grab a copy of uh, Staying Happy, Being Productive. They want to reach out to you uh, to maybe have you come speak to their organization, maybe sign up and, and take this online course, uh, freak out. What's a good way for folks to to reach out and, and find these resources for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, probably the easiest uh, place is uh, my website, drrogerhall.com, drrogerhall.com. And uh, there you can find the book, you can find the course. But if you'd like to go directly to the course, it's freakoutcourse.com. If you'd like to go directly to the book, it's stayinghappybeingproductive.com. Outstanding. And again, listeners, you know, I'll have, uh, I'll have the links to all of those, uh, resources, uh, in, in the show notes there. So you can just click on those and go straight to that. And I highly encourage you check out, uh, what, what Dr. Hall has at his site, check out, uh, the book, staying happy, being productive. And, uh, you know, I have to look into this, uh, this freak out course here, but it sounds very interesting because, um, yeah, there's a, there seems to be a lot that uh, people can freak out over these days, right? There's plenty. There's absolutely plenty. Yeah, there's uh, a, a lot of content I put together in a way that I hope people find engaging and helpful. Love it. Well, look, again, thank you very much for spending the time with uh, myself and uh, my listeners. I know this has been great and informative and uh mm-hmm. You know, next time uh, I'm out in Boise, we're going to have to go to uh, that Bitter Creek Ale House for one of those Huntsman cheeseburgers. That seems all right. You you, you know the place, don't you? I do. That, <laughs> oh, uh, so shameless plug right now. If any of you ever find yourself in Boise, I'm sure there's a lot of great places to eat, but you have to go down to the the uh, the the Bitter Creek Ale House. They've got this thing called the Huntsman's Cheeseburger. And I'm not even entirely certain what Huntsman's cheese is, but it is magic. It is, it is one of the best things you'll ever eat. So listeners, there's your public service announcement for traveling to Boise. Go there, eat that. We've got lots of great local restaurants here. Yes, you do. What? So, um, okay, I'm going to get off on a tangent here, but it's my podcast, so here we go. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the name of that district? It's It's got a name, right? It's... Kind of like an arts and crafts district or something like that downtown. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like Eighth Eighth Avenue. Yeah, uh, that has all the all the restaurants uh, and and uh, little shops on it. It's it's just the downtown. Right. Um, it's, okay. It, it's it's our, our Eighth Avenue is district. Yeah. So, folks, you know, again, Boise is it's one of those places where a lot of people, you know, just because of the commercials, they associate with potatoes and all that kind of good stuff. But there's and a we lot have more. great potatoes, by the way. We have great potatoes. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, they do. So, you know, that's the same with stereotypes. There's some truth to all the stereotypes, right? Yep. So there you go. All right, listeners, thank you. I'll go ahead and close this out for you here. We got uh, sidetracked there. Thank you for being with Dr. Hall and I in this uh, in this podcast. I really uh, hope that you took something from it. I know that you took something from it. 
reach out to me at burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, Dr. Hall left his information there. That'll be in the show notes. But if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know how to reach out there and, and uh, get in touch with me. Uh, continue. Please keep going out there and, and sharing the show and rating it, uh, reviewing, subscribing, doing all those great things that you all are doing so my great guests like Dr. Hall can get their messages spread further and reach more people. That's what your efforts do. They raise us up on uh, visibility on all the various platforms, and they give the show more recognition so these messages can get out there to more people. So thank you for uh, contributing in that way. With that, thank you all for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric Acid.